Are you glad you're here this morning? You didn't need that extra hour of sleep, did you? No, you're here. Good job. Early service too. Nice. You are the core. You are the people that a church is built on right here, right now. Today's a big day. Not only did you lose some sleep, but men, tonight, fight club. 10 o'clock. Show... Coming to the kickoff event does not obligate you for the next 10 weeks. That doesn't mean that you're signed up. You come to the event, you watch some other guys usually do some bizarre stuff, you eat some meat. Did you notice the meat being out there cooked, right? Jeff and John out there roasting a hog as we speak. I mean, if, if Spriggs gets out there, it'll be the trifecta of meat cookers out there. And so that's all happening and, uh, and in about 11, 12 hours, that'll be ready. You know, we'll be all right. We'll be ready to eat. And so you'll watch some other guys do some weird stuff. We'll eat meat together. And then you'll just hear about what Fight Club is. And there'll be an opportunity to sign up at the end. But people won't know if you signed up or not. You can just leave as everybody's leaving. Nobody's going to be embarrassed. You should come and check it out, all right? If you're thinking, yeah, that was weak, all right? If you're thinking... Hey, you know, I just don't think this is up my alley. But hey, c come, guys, men, you'll enjoy the time together. You'll lose another hour's sleep probably or so before tomorrow morning, but it'll be worth it. Come, check it out. Don't miss it. All right, we are in the book of John, and we've been going through kind of chapter by chapter. But if I mentioned to you that we're trying to get where we time it out, where the re when, we talk, when we're celebrating Easter, we're at the resurrection of John, and that means I need to buckle up today, and we need to cover two more chapters. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, let's do it. We, Mike, Pastor Mike just finished up chapter 12, and now we're going to begin chapter 13 and verse 1, if you want to get ready. And here, there, a shift happens in Jesus' ministry. No longer is he doing these public miracles as signs, really proof, that he's the Messiah. At this point, beginning with chapter 13, his focus shifts specifically to his followers. And he doesn't do any more miracles. John shows this shift. The, the resurrection's coming, but besides that, he's now laser-focused on his disciples and this is happening just hours before he is arrested and then later crucified. And so this is that final moment, this final time he has with these men. And even though he's told them over and over he's going to be killed, it's not fully registering because to them, the natural thing that's supposed to happen because of what the Old Testament says is that he would take over as king. Now he's come in in his triumphal entry, and all this stuff is happening, but that's not gonna happen. He's not gonna be king. He's gonna be killed. And so now Jesus is giving his parting instructions, his last instructions to his disciples. What will he do? What will he say to them? That's what we're gonna look at, and we're gonna divide it just like that. What Jesus does and what Jesus says. Here's how he starts. John 13, 1. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And we're going to find out love is action. Verse 2, during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that his father had given him all thing, given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, that's his outer garments, and taking a towel, girded himself. All right, so he's getting ready, what we know, to wash their feet. So not at the beginning of the meal, which was customary, or when somebody came in to the place, that's all happened now, and they're sitting, they're already seated, getting ready to eat. Jesus gets up, takes off his outer garments, girds himself with a towel, wraps that around him, and does this, verse five. And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So a lot of this is kind of practical as far as the custom goes. Remember first century, there's no sewer systems like we know sewer systems. So basically everything dirty and putrid, manure, everything else, all that ended up where all the waste typically in the streets. And people wore back then, in a hot climate, sandal shoes, open shoes. And so they'd walk through all that, and so when you came into a residence, you'd typically kick off your shoes, but also somebody would, you would have an opportunity to wash your feet. So that's kind of what's happening. And, and not only that, when they ate, they ate reclined at low tables, and so as they did that, you're in closer proximity, not only to your own feet, but to other people's feet. And so that's kind of why this custom was happening. But Jesus is doing something a little different here. And, and by the way, even today, feet are offensive in a lot of cultures. For example, in Thailand, you should never show the bottom of your foot to somebody. You know, just doing that, it's offensive. Or that, offensive. You don't do that. And then you, you kick off your shoes and stuff. In Thailand, it's offensive for you even to gesture. with. Like if, if you're in a market or something, hey, maybe I'll buy those potatoes. You don't point with your feet. That's considered offensive. Why? Because the feet are the dirtiest part of the body in cultures like this. And so before you go into a house or, or a residence or a temple or a whole bunch of stuff, you kick your shoes off. So normally, the lowest person would wash the feet. Typically, a slave would, and, if, and, and not, not just a slave, but a non-Jewish slave, because washing feet was considered too low for a Jewish slave. So if, you, if there was a slave present, they would wash the feet, but otherwise, Water would be provided for people to wash their own feet. So that's kind of what's going on. And here we have Jesus, the creator and sustainer of the universe, washing the dirty feet of his disciples. Verse 6. So he came to Simon Peter. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, this is Simon Peter, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
Peter's like, no way, not happening. You're not washing my feet, not gonna happen. Verse seven, Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you'll understand hereafter. What she say? Hey, I know this doesn't make any sense to you right now. You're gonna understand this later. Unfortunately, that's not enough to stop Peter, which is kind of typical of Peter, right? And so you'll get it later. Peter's like, I, I, I don't get it, you know? And, and by the way, that, that's the way a lot of times it is with us. God, I don't understand this. And what's God typically say? Hang on, you'll get it. Trust me, we'll get through this. Don't give up, be obedient, do what I say. Trust me, it's gonna be okay. And Peter understands this all later, but not yet. And so he doesn't stop his argument. Verse eight, and Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now here, wash has a double meaning. Wash as in rinse off your feet, but it's also wash as spiritual cleansing. So he's talking about washing from sin. And this no part, this phrase, it's no share or no inheritance, no place in God's kingdom. So basically, Jesus is telling Peter to help him understand what he's trying to get him to understand is, hey, this, is, this washing of your feet is a symbol that I have to wash you in order for you to be in heaven. So either I wash you or sin clings to you and you go to hell. Verse nine, and Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And now Jesus is gonna point out to Peter, hey, you know, when you go to a meal like Passover, everybody gets cleaned up before they go. They bathe, they wash before they go, but then they have to walk through the streets of the city to get there. And so when they get there, they're all clean except for their feet is kind of what he's saying. But he's teaching this. Hey, once we've received cleansing from our sins, that cleansing part, what this is pointing to, that's a once for all thing. The problem is we keep sinning. So once we become a believer, that means that we're trusting in Christ and Christ died on the cross for every single one of our sins, past, present, even future sins. And so that's one and done when our trust is in him alone and we're not adding to it because we think we did some good stuff. It's all on Jesus. When we put our trust all in him, then he's saying all our sins are forgiven, past, present, future. The problem is we're still sinners. And so after we become a believer, even though we're trying to follow God, it's our desire to follow God, we mess up. When we mess up, we don't feel clean anymore. And so we know what scripture teaches us is that we should confess or admit our sins to God. We should come to him and confess, admit it, and, and acknowledge that we've already been forgiven but we understand that what we're doing is wrong and we repent saying, and that's just saying, God, I don't wanna keep doing this. Help me not do this anymore. See, once we're saved, our eternal des destination is set. That's why we call it saved. We're saved from the just punishment of our sin, which is eternal separation from God. We're saved from that. 
But when we get caught up in sin, we have to stop. Our eternal destiny is still clear. It's just that, hey, we need to admit our sin and hopefully repent of our sin and move on. And then we'll feel the cleansing that God has given us. I spent way too long on that because we need to pick it up here. All right, verse 10. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus, he's in control here. He knows he's going to be betrayed. And he knows that he's going to do it. And, and by the way, so here's this picture. Jesus watching, washing every disciple's feet, including Judas Iscariot, who Jesus knows is going to betray him in a matter of minutes. And by the way, whose feet didn't get washed? Jesus's. But here's, you know, side note, demonstration of Jesus's love for his enemies, like he tells us to do. Verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. So again, now we're seeing that this washing of feet is an example, it's really showing, it's a, it's a picture of God's cleansing of us, but it's also a model of Christian behavior. This is how we're supposed to do. And so because of this, a lot of churches have foot washing as an ordinance in their church, meaning that's something like communion and baptism that the church should always do. Here at Grace, we don't view that as an ordinance, but we do follow this ancient practice once a year at our Good Friday service that is coming up. And so I know that sounds strange to all of you, but we, we do this just as a reminder of what Christ has done for us. And, and you know, we're not really serving any purpose. Feet are clean today. And... Uh, He's just teaching us to serve one another. In the church, every person who's a Christian is gifted by God, enabled by God, to serve their local church. So if you're here and you don't serve, but you're a believer, just know we're not everything we could be because you're not doing that, and that God has specifically gifted or enabled you to serve in some area, and we need that, and we're missing that. And we'll help you figure that out in a serve class. If you want to jump in on that, it's in the bulletin. Here's, here's an example of what I'm talking about. So just last week, the staff and I were talking about, hey, we're going to have that Good Friday service. And a Good Friday service, where we do this bizarre thing of foot washing, you know, and only a few people do that, but it's where we come here together. We have a shortened service, like about a 20-minute music and a, and a short sermon. And then we go back to this room back here and we have a meal together and that ends with the bread and the cup. And then we have this foot washing deal where women go 
to an area over here, and men go over to the old chapel area. And then we sit down, and we one at a time sort of wash each other's feet down the line. You know, maybe only 20 or 30 guys are doing this. And, uh, and 300 women. No, I don't know. I don't know how many. I've never been there, so I, I don't know. But, uh, and then the other people are serving by putting away the chairs. But anyway, so we were talking about that. And then what we were talking about was, will we have child care there? Because there's a lot of child care demands. I mean, that's Easter weekend. We have a bunch of extra services. You know, lots going on. And so the pressure's on with all of our volunteers. And so we were just talking about, I don't even know the answer to that. So don't ask me. But we're working on that. And, uh, and then not only that, are we going to have child care, but then will the child care just be the, for the church service part, or will it, ex- it extend through the meal, which then would be longer? But here, and so we're having this conversation, but I pointed out to the people I were talking to, ironically, it's the, the people who are serving by caring for the church's kids over in that room are more closely following what Jesus is talking about than the men in the other room washing a bunch of clean feet. Does that make sense? Jesus is giving us a model of service, servanthood, and specifically that serving other believers. And so that's what's going on there. So in, in what, what's also interesting to me is in the literature, the Greco-Roman literature of the first century... There is not one example of a higher position person washing the feet of somebody who's perceived as a lower status. Not once in all the, and there's a lot of literature, never, except the Christian church. Where rich landowners would kneel down, stoop down, and wash the feet of their brothers in Christ who were slaves. It's a game changer. It changes history, the Christian movement. And so the second thing that Jesus did, besides washing feet, is he identified the betrayer. Verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak to all of you, I know the ones I've chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And now he's talking about Judas. There's actually two Judases, but Judas Iscariot. And that's, how many of you are horse people? Oh, come on. I hear you guys talking about horses all the time. All right. So here's where this, that lifted up his heel, you know, we're thinking, hey, is that talking about Genesis? You know, what's going on? You know what that's from? That's from a horse, if you've ever been around a horse. They will sometimes pick up their leg off the ground right before they kick you, which is kind of interesting because when they do that, you see the bottom of their foot, which in the, in the Near East, that's an insult. But anyway, that's, that's, that's just a side note. I thought you might enjoy it, but hey, just forget I even said that. Whatever, all right. Judas will betray the one whose bread he'd eaten. Which, which when you're eating bread with people, that's a sign of fellowship. He's going he's to betray him. Continuing, verse 19. From now on, I am telling you, before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
He who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Okay, so we get that. And now there's a subtle shift in what Jesus is saying. Check it out. Because he's going to say that he's troubled. He's stirred up on the inside is what that means. Verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus, Jesus' bosom, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. So, you know, we kind of get what's happening here. Hey, who is it? But then this reclining on his bosom, it sounds strange to us. So I, I, got, I have a few pictures. They sat at U-shaped tables in the first century, especially at Passover. And, uh, and so typically the host would sit at the end of the U. And then they would talk. And so notice here, and they were kind of reclined, and that's how a typical meal would be. U-shaped, the host is at the bottom of the U. And then, typically, they're leaning on their left elbow, and they're eating with their right hand. The guest of honor is to the host's left, which we might not think that, but, you know, but that's just the way to, guest of honor is there. And then the next guest of honor, sort of the second highest guest, is on the host's right-hand side. We know from how these next words that we're hearing, John, who wrote this book, is on the right-hand side of Jesus. And Peter seems to be further out over on the right-hand side. And so Peter, who's not as close to Jesus, kind of signals John during this meal, and he kind of does this, get, who is it? Get, get Jesus to tell us who it is. That's what happens next. But, but, I, but before we leave this picture, I want you to notice one more thing. We back. See, see the red circle? It's interesting to whoever drew this picture, I just found it on the internet, to, to describe something which was not easy to find. But anyway, notice somebody's missing here. It's the honored guest. There's only 11 disciples in the picture. So this guy that painted this, he gets, it seems that Judas was the honored guest at this meal. And I think he's right. And, and as you read what happens next, you'll see why we think, we don't know for sure, that's what we think. So verse 24, Simon Peter gestured to him, meaning John, and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. John, figure it out. Ask Jesus what's going on. So John's next to Peter, I'm next to Jesus. So Peter's not as close. He signals John. And then John, because of where you're sitting, he just sort of leans back because Jesus is right here kind of facing him and says, hey, who is it? Kind of a deal. All right, verse 25. He, leaning back on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Verse 26. Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So Jesus is saying, hey, you'll know by who they, they use sops where you're eating bread or sometimes even meat and you dip it into sauce and eat it. And he's like, hey, the next guy, grab a morsel of food and dip it. But here, 
Judas has to be sitting close enough to Jesus for Jesus just to hand it to him. All right, so picking this up. Uh, where am I? All right. So, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, this is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Again, Jesus is close enough for Jesus to have him food. Verse 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. This is Judas. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. And that, Jesus said a little bit louder, that the other disciples heard that. And so, Satan enters Judas. So, sometimes we come up with a lot of questions. Probably a bad day to talk about this, but I'll try to do it real quick. We know from Scripture that demons, and in this instance, even Satan himself, can possess somebody who's not a Christian. Believers, true believers are already possessed by God. God comes into our lives by way of the Holy Spirit. And so we can't be possessed, but believers can't be possessed, but they can be oppressed, which means we can be affected by the spirit, evil spirit world to the tune that we have non-repentant sin and dabble in that kind of stuff and chase that kind of stuff. We can be oppressed by it. Does that make sense? Because I need to move on. All right, we'll just throw, throw it in there. So Jesus is betrayed. Now think about it. This is by Judas. Judas has heard all the sermons, like many of you. You know, if you heard all the sermons of Jesus, Judas heard them. Judas was there for all the miracles. He saw them. Judas participated in at least one miracle or two where they were feeding you know, large numbers of people. Judas is in the middle of all of this, but he never accepts Jesus as Lord of his life. And there's a warning there for us that we can be churchy. We can know a lot about the Bible. We can argue the Bible and you know, tell people what we know about the Bible. We could serve in the church, but we can never know but sometimes you can do all that and not know Jesus, never having put your trust in Jesus, made him Lord of your life. Verse 20, 28. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. That was the go do quickly. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, he's the treasurer, that, Ju- that Jesus was saying to him, buy, buy the things that we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give some money to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. So we just have to remember, Jesus does a couple things here, washes the feet, he identifies the betrayer, Judas leaves, it's nighttime, and yeah, it's dark. All right. Next, we're gonna see what Jesus did. That's what he, I'm sorry, that's what he did. Now we're gonna see what Jesus said, what Jesus said. And Judas leaving signals the beginning of Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. I mean, now it's rolling. It sort of can't be reeled back. Judas leaves. He's going to be betrayed. The rest is going to happen. All this is going to happen in the matter of a few hours. And then Jesus prepares them for the grief, the trauma 
that they're going to experience as they watch Jesus get arrested, go through a mock trial, and then be tortured to death. Verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God glorified in him. And glorified, he, when he uses that term, he's talking about the crucifixion. If God is glorified in him, God will also glory him in himself and will glory him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. He's only talking to his disciples. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he says this, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. That's actually not a new commandment. That's an old commandment from Leviticus 19.18. But then he adds, even as I have loved you, that's new. That you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Hey, people will know that you're Christians, that you're followers of Christ by you loving other followers of Christ and other people, but primarily other followers. What's new is that they are to love like Jesus loved them, and Jesus is about to lay down his life for them. It's love for other believers. So let me brag on you for just a minute. In the last couple of weeks, you have sent hundreds of bags of rice, life-sustaining rice, across the border of Thailand into Burma, where villages have been bombed out and people are trying to scratch a living out in the jungle, and we found some channels, and we've not exhausted that yet, and we're not done yet with the money that you've already given. We buy these bags of rice, 40 or 50 kilo bags, we sent them across the river. A lot of those, maybe the majority of those recipients would be Christians, but others, it's whoever's in the village. And then they're deposited, and the, for the people to get that, they you know, had to typically walk maybe a few hours to get it and then haul it back. And so we delivered that, and and now we set up, while we were in country, a channel to get buy medicine. And so now we've purchased that medicine, malaria medicine and other things, and we're sending that across the border. And again, we've opened up several channels, and we're going to continue to do that. Right, a bag of rice like that feeds a family for about a month. And so we're staying on this. And that's because of your generosity. That's you loving Others, and thanks. You love like Jesus said to love. Yeah. So as cool that is, is love one another, Peter, he's, he's stuck. He's stuck on something Jesus said before. Next verse, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, he, he's stuck on this, where, where I'm going, you can't come. You know, forget the love part. What do you mean where you're going, we can't come? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, you'll lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster 
will not crow until you have denied me. You deny me three times. Sad. I mean, Peter, who, who was ready to fight at Jesus' arrest, hasn't happened yet, will in just a couple hours, says, I'll die for you. And Jesus says, really? Before the rooster crows in the middle of the night, you'll have already denied me three times. So Jesus prepares his followers for the trauma, his crucifixion, his death, his burial. In their minds, nothing could be worse to them than the loss of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, who they've been waiting for for hundreds of years. But Jesus is going to teach them, hey, this is actually going to work out for your benefit. This is actually a good thing that I'm going away. Now we're in John 14, next verse, John 14, verse 1. Are you still with me? We're halfway through. I'm going I'm to zoom through this. Hang with me, all right? John 14, 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So here Jesus is offering peace to troubled hearts. How? Through belief. And this pistuo, this Greek word belief, that denotes trust in a person. Personal trust is what this belief is. Why? And then Jesus explains, because, verse 2, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And this is actually a reference to the rapture that's connected to the second coming. And heaven's an amazing place, but it's mostly because Jesus is there. Verse 4, and you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? I mean, you got to appreciate this guy's honesty, right? We don't get it. What are you talking about? Where are you going? We don't understand how to get there. And the next verse is one of the most profound and controversial statements that Jesus ever makes. A verse you probably know well, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That statement by Jesus is very offensive today. One way, only Jesus. No other religion works. But what we sometimes... Forget is, this was offensive in that day. In the first century, remember, this is offensive. They have a religious system of works. You keep the law. There's a huge sacrificial system. You have to do this to be okay with God. And Jesus says, no, I'm the fulfillment of the sacrifice. I am the once for all sacrifice, and I am the way. The way to God is me, is what he's saying. Of course, today, we emphasize personal freedom and questions about absolute truth. And people are judged. If they judge somebody, you know, it's profound. I remember my dad, before he passed, us arguing about this passage, you know. He traveled the world. You know, he said, how can there only be one way? Well, because there's only one Jesus. Christianity... Biblical Christianity is the most exclusive religion in the world. And it's also, at the same time, the most inclusive religion in the world. 
it's the most exclusive because there's only one way, one religion. It's only Jesus. Without Jesus, you don't have a chance. No matter what your religion, no matter how good of a person you are, does not matter. Only Jesus. Exclusive. One way. It's the most inclusive that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or where you come from. Rich, poor, doesn't matter. American hill tribe in Asia, doesn't matter. Great reputation or a notorious sinner, does not matter. No other religion's like that. It's the most inclusive religion in the world because it's through Jesus says, I am the truth. You know, we twist truth today by adding personal pronouns. My truth, your truth. That's not truth. Truth is true for everyone. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's good enough for us. Now, it's actually not good enough because we know from Scripture that when the Jewish people were delivered from Egypt and they were in the wilderness, God showed up every day, night and day. And was it enough? No, it wasn't enough. But Jesus answers him. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The works that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. He's, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm, I and the Father are one. It's interesting because here in five verses, the last five verses I read, God is referred to as Father nine times. And th this is significant. I, I remember as a kid, because my dad wasn't a believer, and he's kind of a hard, hard man, but I respected him. I loved my dad. I respected my dad. But we, and I remember, you know, I kind of followed him around as a preteen, 11, 12 years old. But I remember at that time, I kept thinking, because I'd just become a believer, and I kept thinking, okay, I, I, I get this, and I, I kind of understand where my dad's coming from, but I have another father. This is not my only dad. I have another father, and he's in heaven, and he's perfect. So none of us here on earth are. And that's part of what we're doing in Fight Club, that we become better followers first, better husbands, better dads. It's all part of it. And, and we need to be good dads, because if... If someone doesn't have a good father, a decent father, then sometimes, because God is described as father all the time, it messes up people's perception of God. Oh, I don't want a father. I had one of those. Not only does Jesus comfort the disciples, he reminds them who he is. So he comforts them, but he also prepares them for their mission. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. We'll get back to that. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. 
Now, this, I name this not a magical incantation. You throw, it, you throw in a phrase and God has to do it. This is, if you're asking in his name, meaning if you're asking according to his purposes, his mission, what he wants for your life. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We love Jesus through obedience. Verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. And that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. He's talking about his continued presence when they receive the Holy Spirit after he's gone. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, and after a little while, the world will no longer see me, that's his death, but you will see me, that's his resurrection, because I live, and you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in, check this out, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Boom! Mind-blowing. Somehow we, as believers, some mysterious way, we are connected to the eternal Godhead, the one God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. Somehow we're connected intimately with him. We're not God. We're connected to God. Verse 20, he he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. There's a question, I'm gonna wrap this up. There's a question from another disciple. And this is the other disciple named Judas. Wouldn't that be a bummer? You're the other disciple and your name is Judas? No doubt, you know, he probably went to John. John, if you ever write a book and you ever mention me in it, could you remind him I'm not that Judas? So here we have it. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I do not give to you. But let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled, or let it be fearful. Jesus is peace. It's not the absence of strife in our life. It's rather the composure, the trust, helps us face adversity. And so here Jesus is comforting his disciples again, that, hey, he's leaving, but the Holy Spirit's coming, and the Holy Spirit's great, and you'll be able to do greater works, and the greater works is that while Jesus was on earth, his ministry is pretty much limited to wherever he was. But hey, when the Holy Spirit comes, and then every believer has the Holy Spirit, those works are multiplied, and greater works can happen in the sense that can be happening all over the world simultaneously as churches and Christians are gathering all over the world today. He says, I'm going to the Father, but I'll still be with you. And then they leave the room. They walk out of Jerusalem, the eastern gate, down the little Kidron Valley, up the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And I say all that to say this. Most important decision you'll ever make is to trust in Jesus for your salvation. 
Not, yeah, I believe in Jesus, plus I'm a pretty good person. Trust in Jesus, that's it. That's all we have. No good thing we do erases one wrong that we've ever done. Only Jesus does that. By paying the penalty for our sin. Let's bow our heads, and let me just ask this question. If you, if you walked in here not sure where you were with God, but right now you're saying, hey, I get it. I, I don't know that I've ever understood it, but I understood it now. I get it. And I'm putting my trust, all of it, for my salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. If you're doing that now, while our heads are bowed, I'm not trying to embarrass you or anything, just trying to gauge what's going on here. I'd like you to lift your hand up. Our heads are bowed. I'm looking around. Just lift your hand up. I'm not going to call you out or make you do anything. I I just want to know so I can pray for you. Just lift your hand up. Lift it up where I can see it. put it down. Thank you. See you back there. Let's stand together. Let's stand and pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for loving us and dying for our sins. And today we praise you because at least one person I said, today is my day. I'm putting my trust in Christ and Christ alone. God, we thank you for that greatest gift. And Lord, we ask that you'd help us as we go through John just to know you better. That's the whole point. Lord, thanks for loving us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.